Beloved listeners, take your uh, minds back to, uh, to 2010 when a boat crowded with asylum seekers crashes onto rocks on Christmas Island. 35 people died and a lot of local people witnessed the tragedy and its consequences. And so it is around the world. And as the numbers of people seeking humanitarian and economic refuge increase everywhere they land and everywhere they are detained, there are local people who will inevitably be affected by what they see and possibly by ongoing involvement with the asylum seekers. But we don't hear much about these people. In fact, we hear nothing about these people. They're the host communities, effectively, even though they usually didn't choose to be. Dr Michelle DeMarcy was also living on Christmas Island on that fateful, fatal day. She had been researching a PhD on Christmas Islanders' responses to earlier asylum seekers. Now, Michelle has published these findings in a book called Hope, Solidarity and Death at the Australian Border, Asylum Seekers and Christmas Island. Michelle's a human rights advocate and is now based in Dubai, but has been here in Australia to launch her book, and I'm delighted to have her sitting opposite me, which is a, a rare experience in these pandemical days. Michelle, welcome. It's one of those things we tend not to think about, until someone, in this case you, raises it, the perspective of the locals. Thanks, Philip, and thanks for having me today. Yes, well, the perspective of the locals is a really important one, um, given that host communities are always quite heavily affected by what happens when boats arrive in the space that they live in. And you began today speaking about the 2010 boat crash, the tragedy there. And Christmas Islanders were really affected by what happened there um, at that time, you know, where they were able to rush out onto the rocks, rescue people as much as best as they could, as did the Navy that day. Um, and it was such a horrendous, a horrendous event that happened. But it does give us clues into what happens when host communities are confronted with the issues of seeking asylum. Now, we need to remember that Christmas Island is closer to Indonesia than mainland Australia, and that's a key reason why it was a destination. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly right. It's about 350 kilometres south of Java, um, so very, very close to Indonesia. And even the demographic makeup of Christmas Island is quite representative of places such as Singapore. Um, it, you know, it was an original Straits colony, so the the demographic is mainly Chinese and Malay people that all migrated there in the earlier years um, to work in the phosphate mine. And interestingly, Christmas Island celebrates the same holidays as somewhere such as Singapore or Malaysia, Chinese New Year, Hari Raya, and these types of events. It's interesting, isn't it, that islanders are no strangers to boat journeys themselves, with any number of them migrating from Asia across the Indian Ocean to Christmas Island. Yes. Yeah, so if we go back in, in, in time with boat arrivals into Australia, Indonesia was often 
the last port of call before people got on those boats that were, had been fleeing, you know, what was happening in Afghanistan, in Iraq, Iran. And um, it was, uh, Christmas Island became a destination to get to Australia because it was part of Australia, even though its proximity was so close to Indonesia. You write very evocatively, and I quote, that the island's humid air is often intensified with the smell of incense from one of the many Buddhist temples, while the mosque's call to prayer echoes within close vicinity to the small Catholic church. Yes, uh, multiculturalism is a huge factor of Christmas Island and you cannot help but notice these different overlapping aspects everywhere you walk around the island. You know, some of the street names are in in Malay or they're in Chinese or some are in English. And it really is just um, such a beautiful example of a place that, you know, really celebrates multiculturalism and diversity. Well, they also celebrate a wide variety of religious holidays. Correct. Yes. Yep, exactly. So, you know, Ramadan is celebrated there. Um, when the Malay community finishes um, fasting, they celebrate Hari Raya. Um, the Chinese New Year, yeah. How did the island get its name of Christmas? Christmas Island, it was um, discovered on Christmas Day. Oh. <laughs> it was originally uninhabited and then the day it was sighted, was on, it fell on Christmas Day. Yeah. Now, this very interesting mix means that a proportion at least of Christmas Islanders have two things in common with asylum seekers, Islam often, mm-hmm. And I guess a sense of being outsiders, even seen as lesser. Yeah. Well, Philip, that's a really important point because what happened on Christmas Island for many years was essentially apartheid. So for the Asian community, they were racially discriminated against. Um, They were not afforded the same rights as mainland Australians. And this was all about population control that was taking place. Unfortunately, at that time, the Australian government didn't want to take responsibility for the Asian population that was there um, working in the phosphate mine. And the community became very, very active through the Shire of Christmas Island, uh, sorry, the Union of Christmas Island Workers, you know, in terms of trying to really advocate for their rights. Well, that put an end to the technical segregation, didn't it? It did, it did. But even for someone who was Asian, you know, they were not allowed to go on the same bus as a white person. Um, You're kidding. Yeah, And this was taking place up until the 1980s when people were actually given the same rights as mainland Australians. So there's an underlying empathy, has to be there, but asylum seekers had economic impacts too because uh, tourism operators were concerned about the reputation of the place. Mm. Yes, it's quite a complicated issue in that respect because what happened was while people wanted, um, especially, you know, a lot of business owners wanted to see tourists come to the island, it is a really beautiful island. It has some of the best diving spots in the world. Um, And so, and the jungle there is fascinating. Obviously, they want to promote tourism, but of course, it's also got a reputation as this place that incarcerates asylum seekers in a a very, very large maximum-style security detention centre. 
And that huge new detention centre would replace phosphate mining as the main source of employment. It did for some years there, correct. When we saw a surge in boat arrivals back in 2010, 11, 12, it was one of the largest employers there. The phosphate mine was no longer the largest employer. It must have divided attitudes among the islanders. Correct. It, it, It did because we saw the island move away from a very sort of casual approach to uh, detention operations to a full-scaled, institutionalised detention operation where it became what we could call a border economy. What was what was the population before Christmas Island became a such a significant detention centre? Yeah, so it's always hovered around 1,300 people. Well, heavens above, detention uh, centre figures, two and a half thousand mm, people. Yeah, correct. So at one point it was, yeah, over two and a half thousand asylum seekers on the island, uh, several hundred uh, immigration and circo uh, staff who were responsible for the security of the detention centre. And, of course, the overcrowding resulted in the erection of all those tents. Yeah, I remember witnessing that. So at one point we had asylum seekers uh, sleeping in tents on you know, army camper beds as well, yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, there were delays in processing which exacerbated emotions and uh, I recall the time when detainees were protesting and rioting and in the odd case escaping. Mm. So I was on Christmas Island during those 2011 riots and people were protesting and escaping. And at that time, there had been significant delays in people's asylum seeker processing claims. Some people had been there for at least over a year. Some people had been returned to Christmas Island. People were really tired and needed outcomes to their case. They'd come to Australia as refugees. Some had already been found to be refugees even, but there were still delays in processing. Now, you weren't there initially thinking you'd be writing about something historical about the Howard years of loving memory because arrivals had stopped, but then boats started arriving again. Not a lot. And for a moment, wasn't there a a more humane approach from the Rudd government? Correct. So when I did go there in 2008 to commence the fieldwork and research and look at this more of a historical thesis, um, there were no boats. But within my arrival three weeks, boats started coming. And we'd also seen the announcement of the Rudd government's policy with the new detention values, which were much more humane than what they had been under the previous Liberal government. Now, detainees were to be processed within 120 days. Correct. And there was a more of a move towards community detention. So we did see some asylum seekers living on the Christmas Island uh, in the community there as well. Yeah. But when you visited a group of Hazara refugees who'd uh, resettled in Adelaide, they were eager for news. They did. They wanted to know what had happened. And they they have such fond memories of Christmas Island and the people um, and the place. They also thought it was an extremely beautiful island, a very peaceful island, which coming from somewhere like Afghanistan that has had, you know, decades of, of turmoil, it did represent to them a very peaceful place. But, of course, uh, at the end of the day, they wanted to move on to the mainland. 
Now, let's go back on this issue of demographics. Who were the asylum seekers at that point? Where were they coming from and uh, how quickly did the numbers grow? At that time, back in 2008 to 2010, the majority of people that were coming were those from Afghanistan. And we also saw people coming from Iran and small numbers from Sri Lanka as well um, because there had been some unrest in Sri Lanka. But the majority of people that were coming were, were Afghans and Iranians. Now, from 2008 to 2011... More than 14,000 asylum seekers arrived by boat in Australian waters, with most transiting through Indonesia and subsequently being detained on Christmas Island. Okay, now the furious asylum seeker debate was, of course, uh, reignited, and in 2008 uh, the Rudd government announced a six month suspension of all asylum uh, claims by Hazara Afghans. Yes, I was on Christmas Island during that time and and I happened to be in the detention centre when that was announced that day to uh, asylum seekers, uh, particularly the Afghans, that they would no longer be processed for the, six uh, the months. The government's excuse was that, was that uh, conditions had improved in Afghanistan. Which they hadn't, <laughs> and I did go to Afghanistan um, in light of, of, of that uh, policy announcement. And what I did find was, yes, there had been an improvement for Hazara people generally. They had better access to education, um, that their rights were being better upheld under that government, but still the security conditions were not where they needed to be. And I witnessed this, Hazara people came forward and showed me Taliban death threat letters that they'd received. Um, And, you know, it was clear that this was still a place that Hazaras were having to escape from due to persecution. Let's now focus on how local Christmas Islanders interacted with all of this. Back in the, the 90s, it had been Vietnamese and Chinese arrivals. Yeah, so back in the 90s, we saw Chinese people coming by boat. And obviously, given uh, that the majority of people on Christmas Island identify with being Chinese, Chinese Australians, um, they obviously had a shared common culture. So I mentioned in the book, um, one of the interviewees said, oh, you know, there was a lot of cooking because everyone is Chinese here. So people were taking down Chinese food to the what was called the sports hall where people were actually um, being detained in. So there was a common uh, cultural connection um, that uh, obviously allowed for even, you know, closer relations. Now, help and support came from local Chinese-descended people until they weren't allowed to access the detainees anymore. Mm. People were quite upset about that. People wanted to give them food. They wanted to take blankets. They wanted to give toys to the children. And in my own research, I've found that when people are able to see the human face and hear the stories of asylum seekers, they they actually, uh, the human condition is we want to help. Yeah. Now, Alan Nell on RN and my guest is uh, Dr. Michelle DeMarcy, who's written a book about Christmas Island and asylum seekers, but it puts the spotlight on the local islanders, which uh, few others have done 
Michelle herself lived on Christmas Island for some years doing ethnographic research for her PhD. Now, another thing the islanders have seen, which most Australians don't, is the condition of the boats that the people arrived in. Exactly. So people did see these boats and the question would come up for most people was if someone has taken the risk to get on this little leaky boat, something is seriously wrong in their own country. No one is just going to get on a boat like this just for for the fun of it. They're obviously escaping something very, very serious. And people would run to boats with blankets. People would run towards the boats. There are photographs I've seen as well of earlier years where people were actually helping getting women and children off the boats and bringing them to shore. Then the Tampa saga. It's 2001. The Norwegian ship that had picked up asylum seekers from the ocean was not allowed by the Howard government to enter Christmas Island waters over 300 islanders demonstrating and chanting, let them land, let them land. Yes, and the Tampa affair that took place off the coast of Christmas Island was such a pivotal moment, obviously, in Australia's history. Well, it led, of course, to a landslide victory for Howard and what David Marr appropriately called dark victory. It did, it did. But the Christmas Islanders had a very different view to what many mainland Australians had, which was that the Tampa asylum seekers needed to come ashore and they were protesting down in Flying Fish Cove saying, let them land, and that is what they requested from the Australian government. And the response? Well, we all know what happened after that. We entered into a very dark era of uh, offshore immigration detention. It also um, began what has been called a militarisation of Christmas Island and locals didn't like that. They didn't. It was the first time that they were seeing people, military, running around with guns, for example. This was very disturbing to Christmas Islanders. Um, This is a very, very peaceful island. Um, They were not being told um, what was happening. Areas were blockaded off that they couldn't access. Well, you interviewed a guy called Marcus, and I quote, the SAS came like you wouldn't believe. It was like a bloody invasion. And that was told to me on numerous occasions by people that I spoke to. Now, when the Tampa affair ended, although in a way it's never ended, the Norwegian captain, Renan, was a bit of a local hero, wasn't he? He was, he was. He was a celebrated hero on Christmas Island. I understand local businesses collected funds to stage a a fireworks show for the Tampa. That, that's correct. Tell yeah. me about that. Yeah, well, people were very active and I think on somewhere like Christmas Island, you know, it's so remote. People come up with different ways to, whether it's to protest, to celebrate, and in this instance they felt that the Tampa captain needed to really be acknowledged because he he, he had saved those people on board the Tampa. And a local resident said... It was to tell him sorry about everything that's happened, but goodbye, farewell, and maybe come back as a visitor. I wonder whether the good captain ever did. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, you know, I think this is just a, another example of ways in which Christmas Islanders are so supportive of asylum seekers and those that help asylum seekers. Nine years after the Tampa, giant seas washed the Civ 221 onto the cliffs of Christmas Island and the deaths that resulted, of course, remind us of the scale of the tragedy. Mm. Yes, it was such a tragic day when that boat crash happened and I think it really revealed to the Australian mainland as well how serious the consequences are for people that uh, that are on these boats and the risk that people take when they need to flee. Now, Michelle, you were on the island but didn't see it unfold on that uh particular occasion? No, I didn't see it firsthand, but I do remember going down to the settlement area of the island and I had family living on the island as well. Um, And in my my parents' house, because they were there as well on Christmas Island at that time, I could still smell the fuel from the Jenga when it broke up. And I still have this image in my mind as when I looked out at the sea that day and it was still really rough and I could see this child's backpack floating, oh, floating. on, the, on the, the, the sea. You know, I can still remember images of that detritus. Mm. Now, once again, locals tried everything they could to try and save people in very dangerous conditions. Mm. People clambered down onto the rocks, you know, they cut their legs open, they were forming like a human chain trying to pass life jackets. You know, some people really wanted to jump into the ocean and save, but, you know, other people were holding them back from doing that on that that tragic day. One of the, uh, the rescuers said, for a short time a stranger became a loved one. That's a heartbreaking thing. It is a heartbreaking statement and it reinforces that asylum seekers and refugees are human like you and I and people could see that. They could see a a father, a brother, a a child, you know, in the faces of those people. And the island was traumatised, wasn't it? It went into what you talk about as a kind of generalised grief. There was. It, It was... Several days on the island, the atmosphere was very, very heavy. People were severely affected by what had happened. There were even public readings of survivor thank you letters, and I have to read this one from Ramin, who lost his wife, son, brother and sister-in-law. Here on Christmas Island, we have met the kindest people on earth. I wish I could talk your language, how it is here, how kind you are. We lost wife, kids, a lot of people. The huge hole in my heart from that loss has been filled with the kindness of the great people here. Mm. Yeah, so when I still hear that, I still become quite emotional listening to that. As I'm sure everyone listening to us is responding in the same way. Mm. But you were hearing these stories directly from survivors. Correct. I did. And I, I spent a lot of time with survivors inside the immigration detention facility You, you as got well. a job teaching, didn't you? <laughs> That's right. Yes, I was doing that for a, a brief period, um, teaching asylum seeker kids in the detention centre. Yeah. The establishment of this ginormous new detention centre really shifted a lot of things. It institutionalised the whole asylum-seeking process and it separated asylum-seekers from the local community. And that's the issue 
I have with immigration detention because when you look at these maximum security detention facilities, it does give the perception that people inside those detention centres are criminals and they must have done something wrong. Of course, it also means the loss of physical proximity weakens the ties, the shared humanity. Absolutely. People can't get inside to see them and it's it's such a, a bureaucratic system in terms of trying to gain access to people in immigration detention still to this day. I was deeply involved in refugee issues at the time and, of course, out of sight meant out of mind. There was willful ignorance of what was going on in this country. Out of sight, out of mind, out of rights. Probably <laughs> out some... of rights, yeah. And, of course, they... People are depersonalised and become, as happens again and again and again in the annals of human history, the other. The other and they become a number and people are referred to as their immigration ID number, not necessarily by name anymore. And then it sat empty. And then the Tamil family, known as the Belowada family, were there. The only people apart from staff in that enormous place. How bizarre. What a ridiculous expense. A ridiculous expense and also a very inhumane thing to do to send a family back to Christmas Island. And then uh, just recently a group of 12 detainees were moved from Melbourne to Christmas Island. They're people whose visas have been revoked, so it rolls on and on and on. What's the view now on Christmas Island? I guess the population wishes the centre had never been built. I would say that the view today on Christmas Island is Christmas Islands are very proud of their island and so they should be, as I said at the start. It's, it, you know, it's such an incredible place in the way in which it's got so many natural things to offer in the diving. So people are proud of that. Um, they don't want to be known as, you know, Australia's Guantanamo Bay. They're very, very proud of their island. Australia's Guantanamo Bay, okay. Let's now zoom out. There are communities in many other parts of the world having to deal with these uh, situations and one, of course, is land producer, the Italian island between Tunisia and Malta where um, so many people have arrived by boat or not arrived and where, once again, a big detention centre. On Lampedusa, the islanders or the Lampedusians have been dealing with asylum seekers and migrants for some years now. The numbers that they're receiving by boat are much, much larger than what we've been receiving in Australia. But something that always stands out in my mind is that the Mediterranean Sea is the largest mass grave in the world because so many people have drowned trying to get to Europe. Off the coast of Italy, Greece, Tunisia, yeah. Asylum-seeker numbers in Italy are a case in point. Over 13,000 boat arrivals in 2021 to date and over 500 people drowning at sea. Mm. Yes, on Lampedusa, there are memorials that have been erected to acknowledge those that have tried to arrive on Lampedusa and into Europe. Um, the island, it, it really embodies some of the aspects of Christmas Island that it becomes a place where there are unfortunately grave sites for asylum seekers, memorials for those that were lost at sea. Tell me about the Lampedusa resident who crafted individual crosses for each uh, survivor. Yeah, so there's been an, a number of acts where 
when I spoke to those people on Lampedusa, they said, we need, we need to give people dignified deaths here. This is really, really important for them. And you can see that when you go to the Lampedusa uh, cemetery, it's almost as if you're entering into this, it's almost like an art exhibition of asylum seeker deaths. And the, the local people have taken it to, to paint the tombstones, to, to put the crosses there, acknowledge what has happened to people. And they've said to me, we, we need to give these people dignified deaths. I understand uh, some of the crosses are now housed in the British Museum. Yeah, and that was a um, an exhibition that, that toured uh, into the UK just to raise awareness um, around those that had been lost at sea. Khalid Husseini, the author of The Kite Runner, has written a, a beaut forward to your book and uh, royalties from the book will go to... Yeah, so royalties will go to the Khalid Hosseini Foundation um, to support the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. The situation is very, very dire right now in Afghanistan. Um, you know, we're looking at up to two million children that could possibly face starvation. By mid this year, over 97% of the Afghan population will fall into extreme poverty. I want to read what he says in your book about this whole situation. It is true that some people are escaping crushing poverty and come looking for work or education and better opportunities and as such may not need international protection. But many are running from horrors, armed conflict, insecurity, unfathomable human rights violations and gender-based violence. Many run because of religious, ethnic and political persecution or persecution due to sexual orientation, these groups are legally entitled to international protection because they no longer have the protection of their governments and can't go safely home. They should be treated with compassion and dignity and have their human rights respected. They deserve better than scorn, rejection and open-ended detention. I'm sure we both wholeheartedly agree with that. Absolutely. It's, it is about people's human rights being respected. It's about compassion and it's about being able to see refugees and asylum seekers the same as we all want to be seen. You know, we have a right to safety to be able to live freely. Michelle, you're uh, reasonably familiar with Afghanistan. Did you imagine a decade ago that things would have gone as far backwards as they have? Definitely not. You know, it's so devastating what has happened there. I went to Afghanistan many times and, uh, you know, I, I, Afghanistan is such a country that's so rich in, in culture and music and food and poetry. And, you know, right now, you know, all of people's perceptions of Afghanistan is it's just this place filled with fighting and horror. And I feel that, you know, we didn't think it would go this backward and it's really unfortunate. I've had the honour of uh, talking to Dr Michelle DeMarcy, human rights advocate and activist, now the author of Hope, Solidarity and Death, The Australian Border, Asylum Seekers and Christmas Island. It's from Cambridge Scholars Publishing and, uh, as you've heard, royalties go to the Khaled Husseini Foundation. And uh, you are now the recipient of the highest award that this little program can bestow, which is a koala stamp, in your case with gum leaf clusters. Thanks for coming. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. 
think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.